Hi, welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast that covers how comics and pop culture affect life and society, and vice versa. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out and tag us in your post. You can also visit campsite.bio slash life to find out more about us and where you can find our podcast. Now you may be saying to yourself, wow, Kevin sounds amazing right now. Well, thank you. And that's because it is not Kevin. Uh, speaking right now is from Indiana is Sean and with me virtually is James. Hello, everyone. And Kevin, unfortunately, will not be able to make it today, but we know he wishes he could be here. Today we are excited to be speaking with writer Mark Russell and artist Richard Pace. This duo is the artistic mind behind the comic series Second Coming. If you're not familiar with this comic, let me read you the synopsis for the series. God commands Earth's mightiest superhero, Sunstar, to accept Jesus as his roommate and teach him how to use power more forcefully. Jesus, shocked at the way humans have twisted his message over two millennia, vows to straighten them out. The first volume is out now, and the second volume, called Second Coming, Only Begotten Son, will release its first issue in December. Mark and Richard, thank you for joining us today. Now, I'll just go ahead and put this out there, because those of you who have listened to our podcast for a while know how big of a fan of this book that I am. Uh, It is definitely a profound book, so I'm thrilled to death that you both are here tonight. Uh, But for those who aren't as familiar with the comic, how would you all describe Second Coming, and how did you all get the idea for it? I'll let you go first, Richard, because I think I'm probably going to bore people with my answer. Well, this is is Mark's baby. I mean, um, I was brought on board um, because Vertigo wanted to find a book for me after I did a bunch of covers for them. And uh, they they said, would you like to work on the next preacher? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they sent me a, a work in progress script for issue one of, of Second Coming. And um, I went, this isn't preacher. Um, but all right, let's go. And then it just got better and better uh, as it got worked on. It was it was weird because this is never a book I would have assigned myself. Uh, I'm definitely much more of a horror fantasy guy. Um, but, um, when I saw the final form of issue one and what Mark did with it, it was very clearly too important a book for, to not work on, if that makes sense. And which made, of course, all the troubles that it hit with, um, uh, people protesting, uh, Warner brothers, allowing DC to publish it, uh, all the much more worthwhile fighting through, um, and then finding a home that was the perfect place for it. It was, it's almost like fate. No, it is sort of like the, uh, I think, the, uh, the the holy and the profane meeting, you know, a meeting point of the holy and the profane. But for me, the idea came from actually combining two different ideas. So I wanted to write a comic about a superhero who becomes disillusioned with superpowers as a solution to the world's problems. Because, you know, superheroes generally present a kind of childlike approach to the world's problems where, you know, you just like drop kick the bad guy into a volcano and the problem's solved which isn't really how anything in the real world works. Um, although a few things do work that way. Uh, but the, and then the other idea for the comic I had was um, like Jesus Christ coming back to earth and just finding out what has been done with Christianity and being appalled by it. And so it, it really occurred to me that these are really two sides of the same coin. These are two ideas that belong together because they're both about disillusionment with power as a solution to the world's problems. And what would we use 
uh, instead of physical force and bribery to fix the problems of the world, which is, I think is an especially relevant question because those those problems have failed us for you know thousands of years, and we're quickly coming to the end of human civilization if we don't find a third rail. Yeah, it's um, I think I, I thought that I'm working on an issue. Uh, I'm kind of I'm trying to do something bad. I'm working on eight and nine at the same time because the script for nine came on and it was full of stuff set in the holy city during the crusades. And that's just like bread and butter to me to draw. Um, but while I was working on that part of it, um, I realized that there's a, uh, in certain, a certain very positive naivete to superheroes. And that goes in hand, hand in hand with this kind of weird uh, naivete around religion. Whereas you have so many people who espouse to be either Catholic, Christian, whatever, but have no idea what's really in the book and have no idea what, what Jesus was really arguing about. They just, they just almost ignorantly believe that this, this type of power just means good without actually looking at how the power is used or what, whether or not that sort of power will actually affect anything benevolently. Benevolently. Well, actually that, so that kind of answered, uh, the next question I had on here, which was, you know, this is, you know, not just a commentary about, um, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, religion and theology, but also commentary about our current culture um, with uh, how we think about and how we treat superheroes as well, too. And it's a commentary on both of those things. I think, you know, you you both hit it right on the head is that, you know, they, it's a really interesting juxtaposition that I thought was uh, when I read the comic, I thought it was just a brilliant idea of, you know, combining the two and that, you know, uh, Sunstar is clearly, you know, Superman and, and this and, you know, but it, it's interesting because the comic does a great job of kind of pointing out things that we don't necessarily talk about, um, you know, in in our culture, you know, both with religion and with uh, the idea of, of superheroes, what they re- represent for us as well, too. And, and interesting enough, I mean, you know, religion um the way that religion is um what's the word i'm looking for the way that religion is seen and treated tends to be you know a little bit more um reverent than superheroes um in one sense for you know for different kind of reason but um at the end of the day i mean you know superheroes and and comics that we grew up with does have its sense of like reverency from uh people who are you know diehard fans as well too and so um so yeah i I think you know you both hit that hit that it's just kind of really interesting to see the interplay with that and so um so were you I guess my question then is kind of knowing what you were talking about with that. Like, do you feel like um, this was the goal all along or was it, you know, was initially you wanted to do something about the person of Jesus and the, the idea of superhero kind of, you know, came as like a nice little happy accident or was it always planned like that? Um, Well, I think it was always planned like that, but I, because I think that, you know, in in this respect, superheroes and religion are kind of the same thing. They are mm -hmm. thought experiments on what, how you would fix the world if you had absolute power right? or what it would take to fix the world. And I think every religion is sort of a commentary on its, on the time in which it was created and what it would take Mm -hmm. to fix the world, which is why, you know, um, for the ancient Jews who uh, didn't have a country, they were wandering through the wilderness when they they formed their religion. It was very much based upon law and like customs and things that will keep us together as a people, despite the fact that we're surrounded by pagans and strangers. And that's what their religion was focused on. And uh, to the Christians who were living under Roman oppression, 
you know, in, in early Judea in like the first century, the question was very much about how do we get out from underneath the thumb of authority? How do we subvert authority? And uh, I think Christ's answer was to simply drop out. To, he recognized, uh, I think, correctly that 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 the Roman Empire and, and all Rem- empires have basically two means of keeping you in, under their control. They they bribe you with their money, and they um, scare you with their punishment. And the, that's how they get you to. That's what you are as an occupied subject, bribed, and somebody can be scared. And um, Christ's message was: you shouldn't be bribed, and you you should you should rise above and not be able to be bribed and not be able to be scared, which is the scariest thing you can tell an empire. Other <laughs> people tried to rise up against the Romans with like swords and shields, and the Romans were, were um, well equipped to deal with those threats because this is what the rebellion they'd been prepared for all along was to put down an armed rebellion. What they were utterly unprepared for, and what Christ really represented, the threat Christ represented to them was. Um, what do you do about people who just aren't willing to play by your rules? People who are just willing to like uh, trust God to, um, to, to to feed and take care of them and aren't preoccupied with money who aren't, don't care about uh, political power who don't aren't scared when you threaten them with uh, punishment for not doing what you want them to do. And this was like really the scariest thing any empire could ever, ever see. And it's why they ultimately had to crucify him. And I think that, that, you know, the big tragedy was that the ultimate way in which the Roman Empire found to defeat Christianity was to adopt it, was to become, to make it the state religion, and by doing so, make it the servant of the state institutions, make Christianity not a religion of subversion and of individuality, but to make it a religion of, like, uh, telling people to sit down and shut up and listen to the person in charge. And I think this is where most Christian religions and Christian institutions go, go wrong. They side with the institution over the message of Christ. That was also the final stumbling block for the Roman empire. That idea of, I, um, in, in, in what Mark just said, and it's like the seeds for why every empire has tumbled since it's like, it became, you have to think like us and then we'll all get along there's no group of humanity of any certain size that actually all wants to think the same way. So what happens is as soon as you start mandating, everyone has to think a certain way, you start to have fractionalization and everything breaks. And every empire in history has ultimately died of arrogance. They thought they were more powerful than they were. They thought they were more civilized than they were. And the threat to all of these empires has always been somebody who shows them for what they are. And this is what the Romans feared in Christ. And it's what, you know, modern day empires should fear from us as thinking, reasoning human beings. And and one thing I wanted to add on to that is I got to say, like the first page is what got me really hooked on the first volume is that image of God yelling at Adam and Eve with a a really angry face that said, be not afraid, right? Like I I sent it to my bot. I sent it to my buddy who is a, um, PhD candidate for theology and and told him like this is like the best comic like if you're ever going to read a comic you got to read this right um, but I I thought what was also really fascinating is as I was reading this and I don't know if, if this was an intention 
um, on your end at all, or if it's just something that I'm, you know, projecting on myself. But it's like the more I read um, God and His personality in comics, it seems like it's also a um, mirror image of how um, you know Greek mythology is as well, too, where it's it's it, God's is like you know the human person personified, but like with you know infinite power and and um, you know all the um, with none of the limitations, but with all the passion and anger and everything that comes with being a human being. So, so did that at all come in influence how you're writing the story or, or am I just projecting yeah, that a little I, bit? There, there is a thing in theology and philosophy known as the, the problem of the three universes mm-hmm. where it, it's like God cannot be all knowing and all powerful and all good. If there is evil in the world, because if there's evil in the world, then either he doesn't know about it or he can't stop it or he just doesn't care about it. And those are the only three possibilities. So the division of labor between Jesus and God, the father in my comic, me and Richard's comic is um, really to sort of explain the problem of the three universals. God is all powerful, but he doesn't really know what's going to happen. Jesus is much more on the ball in terms of like what humans are like and what's going to happen. But he, he chooses not to be, not to use power to solve it. So it's kind of like a way to sort of solve the problem of the three universals. Well, like early on in the book with the thing about um, Adam and Eve, you know, when you're, when you all talk about that thing to where, you know, for man and animals and everyone to reproduce through sex, but then they have to, um, you know, to feed by killing each other other and stuff just kind of really kind of stuck with me about maybe that's kind of how you know god is like and you all did a great job of well yeah these seem to be whether you you know you know these seem to be two the two sort of basic problems baked into the system is that we um want to reproduce ourselves um and create as many of ourselves as we can but we have to kill in order to uh gets that point to feed ourselves so there's this sort of binary sort of contradictory impulse to propagate and 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 kill and so the way i sort of explain the comic is like well this is like the ingenious idea of satan as a means of like keeping the world in balance where it's like it's like so you don't have just the propagation you don't have just people having sex and creating more and more of themselves uh you have to if you're going to have that sexual reproduction you've also got to have the desire to kill each other to keep the population down, keep it even. And it's a way to sort of, you know, explain like the, um, our impetus towards, uh, towards harming each other, you know, in a way that like makes it seem like they're trying to cover a fundamental flaw they hadn't really thought about in the planning of the human race uh, with, with another. It's like a lot of what the comic is about is about covering mistakes with other mistakes. It's like, uh, we we can solve this problem if we create another problem, you know, to, to sort of counteract. Sounds like government. The comic is that there's no one sort of magic solution. Even Christ's solution of empathy and forgiveness is limited that ultimately what you have, all you have are like a, a, a toolbox of solutions, some of which are better in, in some situations than others. Sunstar's solutions are actually better in some situations than Christ's. But Christ's solutions are are use are in, incredibly important because they're the ones we most often ignore when we, uh, 
you know, lock people away in prisons or we, uh, you know, bomb other countries. We're ignoring the the effects that like empathy and forgiveness and uh, and feeding and healing people can have on the problems we're trying to solve with violence. Yeah, it seems like um, every every culture prefers to stick uh, instead of the carrot when when it comes to dealing with right. the problem. Yeah. It's just easier, you know. It's like the the, the 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 stick doesn't cost you nothing, you know. Like the carrot, you gotta grow. Everyone, yeah, and I think part of it is like you know, the more your civilization invests in sticks, the more they're going to like use the stick as the solution because it's the tool they got. The more your civilization invests in carrots, the more they're going to use the carrots. Yeah, it's like you know, there's the other saying. It's like uh, when you're a hammer, the solution to every problem looks like a nail. Right, and I think that's what really what Christ's thing is like. If we um, if we refuse to be hammers, if we uh, like come in with like a more sophisticated rounded set of solutions to the, the world's problems uh we will we will actually use those solutions but you have to sort of develop them spiritually and in your mind first before you even you know you have to actually think of these as solutions before you'll use them well like even in the uh uh first thor movie you know odin talks about uh uh thor's hammer as being you know a weapon to destroy or a tool to build and you know jesus himself was a carpenter so you know he of course used tools you know to build but everyone else decides to kind of use those to destroy and it's kind of part of the human condition right and a lot of it is like how you how you regard other humans you know uh and I think that this, this is part of the central sort of dynamic of human nature is that like we, you know, even going back to the time when we were all hunter gatherers, it's like, do we, when there's an outside tribe, do we see them as a threat or do we see them as like, you know, somebody who could offer us something we didn't have before. And I think that, you know, human civilization evolved sort of somewhere in the middle where, you know, it's like, you got to have the, the conservative members of the tribe, who treat everybody as though they're coming to kill us uh, so that we make sure that we're not taken unawares by the, the strange tribe. Uh, but you also have to have the liberals who see everyone as an opportunity because that way you get like the, the goods, the ideas, the, the stories from that other tribe that you maybe don't have yourself. And that, you know, you, what you get in the middle are like sort of like trade pact treaties, you know, cultural exchange. Uh, but I think in the 21st century, when you know uh when we have thermonuclear weapons and when you know uh we have common problem we have common existential threats like climate change that sort of view of other tribes as being threats and they're all they're just coming here to kill us is suicidal because either we will all get together to solve the problems that confront us all like climate change and uh sustainable energy and resource depletion or we will die anyway. Our fear, no matter how well-placed, cannot possibly save us. You know, I really kind of think it's going to be scientists that kind of save us because, you know, you know, in their field, like, you know, they're known to work together and to collaborate. Right. So, 
we have to have the common political will to, to implement their solutions. And that's the suit that we need to sort of like be looking for more tools in the toolbox than just like, no, everybody outside our borders are a threat. We need to build walls. We need to have navies. We need to have armies. Uh, you know, we're going to, right now, I think especially in the United States, we sort of think of ourselves as like a fish in an aquarium that's going to survive the fact that the water is being poisoned in the aquarium by hiding in the little pewter castle or by, you know, hiding in the little <laughs> As long as we're safe in our little castle, like the, the, the poisoned water won't affect us there. And it's folly. It's just sort of like a false sort of um, hope. Well, I'm just thinking about um, a lot of people blame America for a lot of it, but just to, to bring up my Canadian perspective on this. Yeah. We had a, uh, uh, a conservative government prior to our current pretty boy liberal government. Um, and they signed a deal with China uh, mm-hmm. for our oil sands in a pipeline. And it was, it was a bad deal because if we didn't deliver it, we'd pay a penalty that actually would essentially bankrupt the country. So we elect uh, a new premier who's promising uh, changes on the climate. And then he un- unwraps his, this secret agreement because it wasn't done in the public, like most political uh, negotiations of this sort are. And he doesn't have a choice. He has to follow through on his pipeline, which is going to do unlimited environmental damage. He knows it. Everyone knows it. But then he has to decide, well, I can go to court with China and we could, we could lose because the contract's written in such a way that we can't win it. Or we can actually slow roll this environmental damage that we don't want to do. I mean, we have, we, we lack the political will to overstep the financial element that's going on competitively with the understanding that we're killing ourselves. Well, and I, I find what's fascinating with, um, you know, as we're talking about this, you know, you know, this long, long history of uh, empires and government control and, and, and all that is, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at it, it's just pretty much the only thing that's really changed is who's in power, basically, right? I mean, even though, you know, the, the empires or the government structures and everything like that is is different, wide, you know, widely, um, widely across the board. I mean, for the most part, I mean, who's usually in charge are the people who are, you know, have gained power through, you know, some sort of, you know, economic or, um, you know, physical success or things like that. And so it usually tends to be, elite because of power resources that they already had before uh, government, right? And now you, you still get a few of those that, you know, are kind of, you know, outliers, but by and large, that's, that's what we're looking at here, right? And, and I think what's, what's interesting that, um, you know, a little bit from what we were talking about earlier before we started recording is that when we look at um, the person of Jesus from all these different kinds of lens, uh, I'm sorry, when we look at the person of Jesus from all these kinds of lenses that we have, one of the things that we don't ever really look at is, you know, the human side of Jesus, at least from that religious perspective. Right. And, and, um, and I think that's, what's really interesting about this story and this comic is it really hones in on the person of Jesus. And, and I, I found it funny, like in that first issue where, uh, when Jesus comes back and God's upset with him because he was like, you know, hardly, you know, there for, you know, very long. And, and, you know, God sees it as a failure. And then, you know, Jesus is like questioning himself and like, you know, did I do the right thing when he came, comes back and all that? Um, I think that's the thing that, that, um, as religion, 
or as people that see that participates in that religion, that we don't look at the human side or the human nature of Jesus. And that's some of the things that we definitely have to, you know, talk about and discuss because for, from a theological point of view, and again, like, you know, my background was in, uh, I have a degree in Catholic studies and grew up Catholic. I'm not practicing anymore. But um, when we look at the person of Jesus, you have to have both of those in the theological part, but we tend to gloss over the human side. And I think that's what's really great about this comic is that it really does focus on that. And, you know, whether you love it or hate the comic, it does force you to look at what does it mean for Jesus to be a human being because they want to latch on the divinity side and say that he's never made any sort of mistake or has done anything, you know, wrong or even like being tempted. Like, if he's ever said that Jesus was actually tempted, even though in the Bible it said that he was tempted, and you talk about what does temptation actually mean, does that mean it just presented itself, or does that mean Jesus thought about actually, you know, committing that temptation, you know? And and I think that's what one of the great things about this comic does. It really shines a light on that human aspect of Jesus that we need to have a conversation about and, you know, think about how we approach, you know, not just the person of Jesus, but, you know, just pretty much everything in our lives, which I, which again, I love that it was was a nice juxtaposition to bring in a superhero in this comic too. Well, thanks. Yeah. I I think that in a lot of ways it defines the difference in the approach uh, between God, the father in this comic and Jesus Christ and that God, the father is very much like, no, I'm, I'm the deity. It's like, you listen to me and you do what I say because you're just these people I, I made out of mud one day. And, and Christ's approach is completely opposite. He wants to understand people's pain and what they're going through and sort of like change the world from the bottom up. So the reason why he comes to um, earth as a human being is because he wants to understand our pain. He wants to know what it's like to be a human being before he tells us how to change. And and I think that's really what his message boils down to. And I think what the, the ultimate message of Christianity really boils down to is empathy. It's like, you know, walk a mile in the other person's shoes, which, you know, or, you know, um, which is literally like, like one of his parables about like, like walking with people and understanding what their life is before you judge them. And I think that's what his mission was, frankly, was to understand humans on their own, on their own terms. The people I've run into online um, who've hated the idea of the book um, generally have presented their criticism in the position where they don't want a human Christ. Uh, their objection. Right. They like that top down approach. Like, like do what we yeah, say. It's, you'll it's get very much. It's like, I, I, one of the first drawings that came out was one of the first drawings I did where uh, it's a riff on the odd couple movie poster where it's like, Jesus is showing up with a suitcase, you know? Um, and one of the guys, um, one of the critics of the very idea of the book. So this is before it even had an opportunity to read the book, basically said we were attacking Christ because I basically put a vaguely embarrassed look on Jesus's face. And, and so I, I, I'm watching this critique of a single drawing to, in an attempt to tear down the whole concept of the book. And I realized what he's, he's against is the idea that Christ could be human. These are the same people who are upset about the book and later the movie that Scorsese made of The Last Temptation of Christ. They don't want a human Christ because if Christ is human, then they actually have to start having empathy for other humans. Well, I think one of the big mistakes that modern Christianity makes is it focuses entirely on like the crucifixion 
the death of Christ and what that means for them, as opposed to like the uh, the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ and what that that means. And I think, in fact, they focus on the crucifixion precisely because of the way of of, of ignoring the the teachings of Christ. Uh, but really, if Christ isn't human, if Christ isn't like suffering with us, then what does the crucifixion mean exactly? It, the crucifixion doesn't mean anything because it's it's just you know this godlike figure like kind of like secretly chuckling to himself like oh these 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 puny mortals think they're they're hurting me but you know I I couldn't give less of a shit because I'm actually God. Uh, whereas if Christ is like actually human and suffering with like a human, yeah. then the crucifixion means everything because it means yeah. it's like somebody who's willing to like give it all to move the human race forward a step or two. And it actually makes it only if you regard Christ as a human with the same pain and the same uh, physical like dimensions of the rest of us, do you begin to like understand that the, uh, the crucifixion of Which the sacrifice. I, I think it goes back to, again, the people who are most upset about her book seem to embrace like the Mel Gibson film, which is abstracted right. Jesus into nothing but, but suffering, but not human suffering, inhuman suffering. Well, it, it, yeah, and it's all kind of like this, it's like two hours. I remember going to see The Passion of the Christ in the theater and just being sort of gobsmacked that like people are coming, like bringing their three or four year old kids to watch what was yeah. basically like two hours of torture porn you know <laughs> and i was just hoping i was hoping i know it would never happen but i was hoping like watching the passion of christ there'd be a scene where they show like like uh like like people like in the audience watching christ being tortured like eating popcorn and hot dogs like the people in the theater were doing so that's essentially what they were they were just sort of witnessing the uh the crucifixion but but you know christ's power and his uh is um message don't really emanate from the fact that he was brutally tortured and crucified because hundreds of thousands of people were brutally tortured and crucified by the Romans. It comes from the fact that he, uh, uh, what everything that happened before then, the things he was saying, how different the fact that he represented such a threat to the Roman empire, just through his words, through his thoughts and ideas that they had to crucify him, even though he wasn't like leading an armed uprising. To me, that's, that's really the, the, the power of Christ, not the, the fact that he was like, tortured and well, killed also, like so many I mean, other people there's the part of me that where the the understanding that jesus knew he was going to essentially be executed and and he knew he had to make the sacrifice if if it's nothing if, if it's boiled down to nothing to him being brutalized and then killed then everything that came before is meaningless and so when when mel gibson mm-hmm. and evangelicals just focusing on you know, the suffering of the christ it, it's, it seems disembodied. Well, you know, it's like it's the empire mod mode of like controlling people is like you control people with revenge and bribery and Christ was against that. So how do you transmute Christ into like a uh, messenger or to like a, a mascot or uh, revenge and bribery? It's like you focus on the fact that he was killed and the need to get revenge on the people who killed yeah. him. So they, they, they've used this crucifixion as a way to sort of like uh, flip the yeah. script on everything he stood well, for. Also, I mean, Jesus has been used to like um, go after so many different ethnic groups. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it's impossible for anyone to read the gospels and imagine that, that Christ would have wanted like yeah. pogroms or, you know, like anti-Semitic violence 
and violence against the people that he himself like came from as a result of like his his life and his teachings. It, but it, it it was it was more useful to like empire than uh, than actually following his teachings. Now we've talked about you know God and Jesus in your book, so let's talk about the um, um, the other side of that coin, and let's talk about the devil for a bit. Um, midway through the first volume, you've got Jesus and the devil there kind of talking together again. And then you bring in um, God and he and the devil there are kind of going back and forth about trying to keep Jesus safe. So there's not, you know, a repeat of what occurred 2000 years before. So uh, would you all kind of uh, talk a little bit about what you all kind of saw with the devil in your book and kind of what his part was to play. Yeah. Well, a lot of what the Satan in the comic book is based on is based on the, um, the non-canonical Gnostic Christian text called the, the acts of Barnabas, uh, which is a, a book, which actually has like sort of a sympathetic port- portrait of the devil because uh, it, it, you know, the, 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 it's about where the disciples summon the, the devil or Christ summons the devil. So that the disciples can ask him questions and he tells the story. It's actually kind of heartbreaking about how he was Christ's best friend, or I mean, he was like God's best friend, and he was like the first angel that God ever created. You know, like this is number two guy. And then he felt betrayed when God wanted to um, basically create these human beings out of mud, and then wanted him to serve human beings. He felt like he had been passed over for a promotion, and that he was actually like God's favorite creature. And then suddenly, God just like, like. Uh, chose someone over him. And so it really is kind of like an emotional portrait of Satan that you don't really get in any of the scriptures, but it makes his motivations in the rest of the Bible extremely clear, like why he would rebel against God, why he would try to um, subvert human beings. And the reason is because he was hurt. Most of the evil that in the world exists, exists from people who are hurt. And so I thought that was a much more interesting motivation for a Satan character to somebody who felt like he was part of the family or a valued part of the company. He was like the red stapler guy in, in, in God's uh, you know, world, as opposed to just being some, some, you know, mendacious supervillain who just plots revenge for no clear reason. That, that um, Mark and I had actually talked about uh, Satan prior to my designing him for the first time. And the, the tragic aspect of Satan I just, I'm going, okay, so we're doing essentially a funny book, but he's got to be the saddest guy ever. And all I could think of is if this was a movie, a younger John Lovitz would play him. Just, just the idea that this is a guy who at some point thought he was the best thing going, but everything just didn't turn out well. And he's pissed and he doesn't have the ability to effectively get over it. And it just, he just seemed so sad. I just thought, okay, well, let's, he's going to dress nice, but he's going to be clearly not stylish. Like, I mean, it's like, you know, a silk shirt and a black suit is kind of low rent idea of stylish. And, um, and he's just kind of gone to pot. He used to be super pretty and the handsomest angel. But he's kind of like, you know, he's, he's, uh, He's a guy who's never got his life together and he's in his late forties kind of muttering about going, what the hell am I going to do with it? Oh, I'm pissed. I'm going to do something. 
Yeah, and to add to his misery, you know, he's just been sort of wandering the earth for all these thousands of years trying to get petty revenge on human beings without really being able to, like, sort of connect with anybody. So he's really just sort of lived as, like, a wraith or as, you know, a ghost in our world. And so when, when I don't want to give his spoilers, but at the end when he's finally released from that, it's like, you know, almost like an act of mercy. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking about like that that scene meant a lot to me. I had to think a lot about how to how to do that scene. And part of what informed it is realization is that okay, so he's he's trapped on Earth and he's seeking vengeance. And there's so little active divinity on Earth that he's 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 seeking vengeance on humanity, but humanity's so short-lived, none of his vengeance is actually gonna feel satisfying. So it's like it's, it's a complete dissatisfied immortal. Of course he wants it over. He's another example of sort of the futility of, of violence and like healing ourselves. So, uh, Mark, I kind of threw you for a loop there with talking about Satan there. And you thought you thought I was going to bring up um, Sunstar. So let's talk about him for just a bit then. You know, it's definitely, you know, a juxtaposition in the book. You know, where you've got Sunstar and God thinks, wow, this should actually be my kid. And then you all basically have them have Jesus and Sunstar become roommates. So tell us a little bit about how you all uh, went that route. Well, initially I had pitched this as a Superman comic. And um, I remember uh, talking to, I was uh, meeting Dan DiDio over lunch and he said, I like the idea, he said, but um, I get death threats when Superman fails to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So I, I can't really have him, I can't have him like shacking up, you know, as like roommates with Jesus Christ because that, that's just a, a bridge too far. He said, but pitch it as like a creator-owned property and I'll, I'll approve it. So that's when I, you know, came up with like this other Superman-like superhero. And it actually was quite liberating for him not to be Superman because I was because Superman's like also a really great guy with a with a you know a really strong moral compass so it wouldn't have really worked to have two really great wonderful guys being roommates I need one to think he was sort of like you know knew how the world really worked and it worked with like drop kicking people and punching them out and then another guy who had a completely different vision of the world and see how they they sort of like meet and how they how they sort of like rub off on each other so it allowed me to go a little darker with the sunstar character you know when it was like not like really an established superhero but just somebody we were making up yeah i mean it's it's pretty clear from from mark's work if he was writing superman he'd understand superman and wouldn't write him i mean there's other writers who've written superman very much like sunstar uh to put it bluntly. i mean sunstar is very flawed and he hasn't gotten over much um, he wants to be good, but he's not good at it yet, like most people. And um, he developed bad habits of power, like most people with power do. They they learn what works early on, and what works in the short term is not necessarily what's best for the world. I mean, we all deep down know what to do if we see giant alien robots robbing a bank, and we have the power to kill them. Well, we smash them. Yeah. It's like so. It's probably safe to say that this was a controversial comic, <laughs> and uh, when you were trying to publish this comic, it was originally going to be published under DC Vertigo, 
but then they ultimately decided against it because of criticisms they received. So um, I guess our question to you is, you know, were you expecting any of this? And after this experience, has this changed anything for you regarding how you think about doing comics, either, you know, in general or for um, a comic that's about a reverent or important figure or anything like that? Well, I thought, you know, people would at least give it a shot for as poorly, like we're demanding and burned and, you know, effigy. Uh, so I thought people would read it and then like it would diffuse a lot of the anger. Uh, now it's maybe naive in that part because people were upset just at the very concept of that. And I think more importantly, they were, they were upset that somebody outside their own little sort of religious bubble would even deign have an opinion about Jesus Christ or theology. I think that's really what the, uh, the uproar was about. So uh, no, I, I don't think, I think the, 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 uh, the outrage was misplaced and it's not going to change anything I do going forward. I think if you're not writing about something you really have to say, or not writing about something that you that really means something to you, then you're just sort of, you know, uh, treading water. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was also a little element of the political opportunism of the attacks on us. I mean, um, it was a slow news week. They wanted to deflect from something that was happening in the conservative sphere. So suddenly, news story was it like four months later after the book was announced circulated and launched a yeah, petition yeah, yeah. Announced in summer and then like wasn't until like you know the yeah. winter and i think it's like when they like the uh the uh um muller report was coming out that suddenly this became like sort of a culture war yeah. story mm-hmm. and i mean i was I, I think i was a little more higher profile online in terms of like being a target for like conservative comics fans so i got death threats i don't i don't think mark got any did you get any death threats mark if I did, I didn't read them because, you know, I, I can usually tell within the first three words whether well, this message is from somebody I want to, like, read. <laughs> I read them over my morning yeah, tea to get a good you know, wake up. On Twitter, I just mute or block people and let them shout into the yeah. void, you know. So I, I rarely see any sort of – I mean, I, I, I rarely – I don't want it, you know, interfering with my psyche. Right? If somebody's just, like, a, a troll or something, I, I don't listen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, when uh, it was out in previews for Vertigo, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got to get this book. Like, it looks amazing. You know, and then, you know, Fallout, you know, with the culture war kind of part of it. And then you all got got the rots back to it and took it over to Ahoy. Would you all kind of briefly talk about how that went down? Like bringing it over to Ahoy and the, yeah, I know you all had to make a change to do that. It was for the best, but, but yeah, it, it went down pretty quickly. Like, uh, after the online petition started and it got like, you know, about a half a million signatures, like the heat was kind of strong, uh, at DC. So they asked, you know, they, they said, look, if we're going to do this. We're going to need to make a ton of changes. And they, and they were, didn't want to do it. They, they liked the book, the way it had been written. Um, and so we don't, we don't want to like have to like give into those changes. So would you consider taking the rights back? We would just give you the rights back and taking it somewhere else. And I was like, yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense. Uh, because yeah, at that point it wasn't really good. You know, that sort of controversy and stuff. It wasn't going to help them sell Batman lunch pails and t-shirts. And it was sort of putting the people who were standing up for the book in a bad position professionally. So I was happy to like take the rights back. And, you know, we, we took the, uh, the comic to Ahoy because, 
they're a relatively new company and that sort of like publicity actually helps them. Mm-hmm. You know, what, with everything that made it a negative at like DC Vertigo made it a positive at Ahoy. Mm-hmm. Awesome was actually a really perfect fit with what Ahoy was doing. I mean, we had pretty much everyone except for Image wanted the book. And, uh, but no one was as good a fit as Ahoy in terms of the lineup of the books or how much of attention and support the book would get. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, part two comes out in December with, um, with, um, only begotten son. Uh, what can we kind of expect, uh, with, um, part two when it comes out? It's more character centric. So you learn a lot about like, uh, Sunstar's origin and also, uh, Christ's, um, sort of like attempt to sort of build his church on earth for the second time. And you get more of like, um, what, what heaven is like. So it's much more sort of like takes a chance and like sort of shows you in, in great detail. Uh, it, it explores more of the world we've created in the first volume in greater detail. All right. Well, Mark and Richard, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Before you go, why don't you tell everyone uh, where they can find you on social media and how they can contact you? Uh, best way to contact me or to follow me is on Twitter. I'm there the most. And I'm at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S, on Twitter. Um, finding me, yeah, I'm on Twitter, rpace on Twitter. But if you just really want to see the art, it's uh, Richard underscore Pace on Instagram. Um, those are the two best places to, to get a hold or follow me. Great. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of The Caption Life. We hope you enjoyed listening to us. And again, don't forget to uh, subscribe to us on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out and tag us in your post. Until next time. Bye.